Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are, and welcome to the Politics Guys with your hosts, Dave Carson and Michael Darnowski. Welcome to the Politics Guys. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. My co-host this week, as always, is Cleveland area attorney and sometime Republican strategist Jay Carson. Our top story this week is Verizon, where 36,000 workers, that's 20% of the company's total workforce, went on strike. Now, salary isn't really the issue. There seemed to be some agreement, in fact, on a 6.5% increase. What did break down talks were disagreements over benefits and job security. And as you would expect, Democratic presidential hopefuls Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders eagerly embraced the cause of Verizon workers, even briefly joining the striking workers on the picket line. So... What do you think about this? Is Verizon being an evil company, Jay, or are the workers just being unreasonable in their demands? Well, you can guess where I'm coming down on this one. I would I would say the, the workers perhaps might be unreasonable. Now, reasonableness is something that um, it's really up up to the employees and the company to, to figure out for themselves. But the, the, uh, the employee's grievance, the union's grievance, uh, seems to be – less about uh, we're being treated poorly uh, or working conditions are bad or so forth um, as opposed to so the company's making more money than uh, than we think they ought to and we think it ought to sure. be ought to be paid to us um, and and no I mean that to me that is a you know, look. I suppose if the the uh, board of directors and the officers of Verizon uh, uh, think that they're the services of, of these employees are worth more or worth keeping, uh, and they can go ahead and make the changes. But at this point, it seems they're not. They have they have taken a page uh, from Ronald Reagan's book, and they've brought in non-union replacement workers, and uh, it seems things are going okay. Right. So, you know, the, to, to me, this, this strikes at my conservative soul as um, <laughs> being sort of the, the union – Union greed that that is what what really bugs so many Republicans. Um, and, you know, uh, I think you know there are a couple ways of looking at at this. I I would argue that for one thing, certainly Verizon is doing as a company overall is doing extraordinarily well. I, I took a look at their uh, their net margins uh, and for 2015. Their net profit margin was a little over 13 and a half percent. And that's well, good for them. Yeah, that's a lot better than AT&T. That's a lot better than the industry as a whole. But then again, if you take a look at their net margins in their wired and their wireless industries, parts of their company, and the workers who are striking, almost all of them are part of the old kind of style wired Verizon industry, whereas the wireless part of the industry is doing gangbusters. They're kind of phasing out the whole wired thing. And so in a sense, yeah, Verizon as a whole is doing great, but you know, the, the question is, is should the, should the wireless part of Verizon substitute or sorry, subsidize the wired part, which isn't doing nearly as well. And clearly Verizon doesn't want to do that. It's, you know, they're, they're pulling back on expanding their their FiOS, their wireless system, the service, and so forth. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I I hate to say this, I, I really do hate to say this, but I kind of see Verizon's point here, and it pains me to say this, Jay. It really does. But you know, uh, the workers are are doing well. Certainly, the the Verizon. And I, is- I should point out, this is the 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 average 
according to this is according to the New York Times, uh, the average union worker for Verizon makes one hundred thirty thousand dollars a year. Well, no, that's actually not quite right. They make one hundred thirty thousand well, dollars a year. Now, look, let me just it correct you. And benefits, in, right? Benefits. And now benefits tend to be around, on average, in, in uh, industry, tend to be around thirty percent. So we're talking they still make uh, just shy of $100,000 a year, I think, how that works on average. So they're, they're, it's a good – these are well – good-paying jobs and certainly – and they're obviously concerned that Verizon is you know, going to go away from some of these jobs as they almost certainly are. But, but again, I – it's hard for me to uh, it's hard for me to side with the workers on this because I sort of I, I hate to say it I sort of see it from Verizon's standpoint here and I, it pains my liberal soul to say that but uh, I, I kind of uh, I kind of think Verizon has a point here. Well, you know, some something else, and and this just goes to union membership in general and part of our changing economy. Um, you and I both grew up in in a region which was heavy in uh, manufacturing and industry. Um, Northeastern Ohio, yeah. Northeastern Ohio. And and most all of us either had a relative, a neighbor, or knew someone who worked in steel mills. Um, and, and, you know, that, that kind of work is – is incredibly tough. It's incredibly dangerous. It's, it's awful. It's, uh, you know, smells terrible. There's, I mean, there, there's, you know, it's a hundred, you know, 20 degrees. It, uh, there are so many reasons. Uh, and I, I can understand why, um, a steel worker, uh, would, would need a union. Um, but when you're talking about Verizon workers, it's, this isn't a steel, this isn't a steel mill. Uh, it's not a coal mine. Uh, it's not the kind of, of, uh, heavy industrial dangerous, uh, type of jobs where you had people with very low education. Um, you know, sometimes not even speaking the language, uh, and, and, you know, really very little bargaining power against a a very powerful uh, company. I, I think those dynamics that existed, uh, the early part of this century just just don't exist today, particularly in in something like the telecom industry. Okay, um, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna really disagree with you on that. Uh, oh, okay. I, I was worried. I was worried because we were agreeing so right, much. But, Verizon uh, worse than a steel mill? No, not no, not at all. Of course, you're right. There are some some industries that are inherently more dangerous and so forth. But I believe that. You know, workers do have a right and should, in fact, collectively bargain for fair wages, for good wages, reasonable wages and salary increases and so forth for their for their fair share of the pie. And I think Verizon workers have done that. But, you know, the company offered six point five percent raise. Uh, and that, to me, seems very reasonable. Their benefits package is very good. So what they're trying have, have to any, do yeah, is – Let me ask you this. Have, have any professors at uh, Northern Kentucky University received a 6.5% raise last year? It's been a long time since we've seen anything like that. I, uh, I, I can tell you in the private sector sure. uh, for for law firms, again, that would be uh, – a 6.5% raise would be unusual. Yeah, well, and, and that's my point, I guess, is that if, if this were a case where Verizon was saying uh, – we're going to give you 1% and we're going to cut your benefits. And they, they did make a few cuts to benefits. But overall, the package seems reasonable to me. And I think what Verizon workers are asking for is protect our future jobs. That's not unreasonable. And so that's where I kind of go from siding with the uh, siding with labor to siding with management. I absolutely think labor has a right to demand reasonable wages and benefits. But what I don't think they have the right to demand is to tell, you know, is to tell management, here's the kind of job we want in the future that 
that to me is going over the line. And so while right. generally speaking, I side with labor here, I think Verizon push, uh, the, the workers are pushing it a little too far. Well, it's, it's good to hear the reasonableness of, of your position. And I, it's, it's a shame that uh, uh, the Democratic uh, uh, contenders don't share that and they're going to uh, take to the picket lines with the, the oppressed yeah. uh, workers of, uh, of Verizon. Yeah, these, these are certainly not uh, super oppressed workers or anything like that. So, yes, on, on this issue, I think we do absolutely uh, we do absolutely agree. You know, I think there's actually another issue. That we agree on as well, Jay, this week, believe it or not. What's that? The issue is taxes. Uh, I'm I'm not a big fan of paying them. I mean, I recognize that they're, you know, important and necessary. But, you know, if I could do without the whole tax day thing, I, I, you know, that's kind of a a morning I spend with with TurboTax once a year that I don't really enjoy. And I'm betting you probably don't enjoy that either. Um, You know, I'll tell you, this is the the. Fame relation from uh, I think it was Oliver Wendell Holmes is that you know taxes are the price we pay for civilization. Absolutely, um, and and so there's there's something to that, um, uh, but um, you know I, I actually I don't it doesn't bother me doing my taxes and I, again that sounds strange. You're a very weird man. Complaint. Yes. Okay. Um, no, but maybe it's partly because I'm I, I enjoy the hunt. I enjoy looking for the deductions of like how do I. How do I, you know, stick it to the man kind of thing? No, I, I view uh, doing my tax return as sort of uh, – it's kind of like a puzzle, sort of like a crossword or something like that. And, um, you know, what deductions can I get where and, and how did I do and how was I uh, – did I do anything uh, really smart in terms of um, uh, lowering my, my uh, uh, taxable income? Um, so it, it doesn't bother me a whole lot and it's, it's nice to see money coming back. And I, I, I realize from an economic standpoint – that's an entirely wrong way to look at it because it's sort of sort of free money that I loaned the government for a year. Um, uh, but but no, the the idea of doing my taxes doesn't doesn't bother me. Um, and also, sometimes I like again this is this is a bizarre uh, sort of thing. But when I come on you know this podcast or when I'm talking to other people in the street, um, I like to look at that number as to how much I've actually paid. Um, that's sort of giving me a little little bit of standing to to complain about stuff. Um, okay. So, okay. Well, I, I think that so makes no, you. I'm, a, I'm not. I'm not against it. Now, now, uh, if if we want to talk about where are we going on taxes, I, I think there's a lot to be said. To to me, the the bigger problem in our country isn't our our personal income tax structure. It's it's the corporate income tax structure. Now, now, before we get to that, I want to point out, of course, that people do have, at least this year, we're sort of given a little gift, right? They have a little extra time to do their taxes. Now, probably by the time most of our listeners hear this, tax day will have come and gone. Normally, it's the 15th, though uh, this year it's the 18th of April, thanks to uh, Emancipation Day which I had actually right. never heard of. Uh, uh, for, for those of our, our listeners who haven't heard of it, uh, like me, it actually marks the anniversary of Lincoln signing what's called the Compensated Emancipation Act in 1862, and that ended slavery in Washington, D.C. Now, that, normally it's not a thing, right, because... It's not the, that's not the same as the Emancipation no. Proclamation. Different thing, yeah. Which, so, which was signed in, in June of 1863, um, I'm going to take your word for it. Um, three sixty-four. So, but yeah, later clearly, and not in April. Right. And now, actually, Emancipation Day is the sixteenth, but of course, the sixteenth falls on a Saturday. And what's the point in holidays? Don't give you a day off of work. And so, you know, they had it on the fifteenth instead and moved Tax Day back, basically. And, and the, what what 
uh, often happens at this time of year is members of Congress introduce legislation that almost certainly won't go anywhere that's related to taxes. And it happened again this year. Uh, uh, on Wednesday of last week, a liberal hero and freshman Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren introduced a bill that would actually eliminate the, the for most people, not you, but for most people, the pain of income <laughs> tax preparation. Uh, by giving them the option to return a pre-prepared IRS return with their tax refund or uh, uh, liability already calculated, and uh, that's, this oh, that is actually, sounds awesome. This is actually done in a lot of countries, and and for most people who just take the standard deduction and don't itemize. Now, that wouldn't apply to you or to me, but for most people, that that's what happens. And so it could be just basically they get a form, they say, okay, great, give me my money back and send it. You know, and In fact, in some countries, they're allowed to respond with a text. Uh, so that would make things a whole lot simpler, actually. And that's one thing that the left and the right tend to agree on is taxes should be a whole lot simpler, though one group that doesn't agree on that or one industry is the tax prep industry, and they have spent billions of dollars over the years lobbying to make taxes as complex as humanly possible and understandably so, you know. So you are for simpler taxes though, right? Well, yeah, yes and no. Um, I'm for simpler taxes. I'm, I'm not sure I'm necessarily for like just have the government uh, figure it out for me and then uh, tell me what I owe. Um and that would because be voluntary. I, I think, of I think course. there's something important in, in the exercise of, uh, of of being able to to do your taxes. Yeah, and, and you and could still do that. What... I should say that. I'm sorry. Okay. Uh, you could still do that, but you would have the option if you didn't want to to just say, okay, that's fine. Whatever you say, IRS. Right. But if you say, well, no, I I want to go ahead and itemize or do it all myself or something, you'd still have that option essentially. Well, that's good. At yeah. least at least for the at least initially you'd have that option. But I could see the 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 slope getting slippery. Sure, sure. Uh, into you know the arguments of uh, we pay this much more to have all these people itemize and geez, why can't they just check the box like everybody else sure. and uh, take what the government gives them? Yeah. Um, I mean, no, I no. Look, I agree. It it shouldn't be it shouldn't be hard, um, but it's almost. And, and I'm I'm departing probably from from most conservative doctrine on this, uh, but I think it it's kind of uh, it's kind of like voting. If if you know what I mean, I mean, there's always this sense of voting ought to be easy. It ought to be so easy. It ought to be yeah, uh, you know, uh, absolutely no barrier worry free and, and it's much too complicated. Um, but there's something valuable just to our democracy and having to put a little bit of effort uh, into being a participant in it. And that's, that's kind of the same way I feel about taxes. Hmm. Okay. And now certainly- again, that sounds dumb. That sounds goofy, but, well, no, it's sort of okay. Maybe you know, I, I might accept that. Say a little bit of effort, but I, I did some digging, looked up some numbers, and uh, according to the IRS, uh, the average taxpayer spends around thirteen hours and two hundred dollars on tax prep every year. I mean, that's thirteen hours. That that's insane. And not only that, but uh, well, what, I don't know what are they doing though. I, I mean, don't know, I don't, but I, I, that's what I don't understand. I don't know, but you know, also. Around two-thirds of Americans, or not quite, but right around two-thirds, actually paid someone else to, to do their taxes for them. And, you know, here's where, again, Democrats and Republicans say uh, it should be a lot easier now. Democrats and Republicans differ in what they want to do. For instance, Ted Cruz wants to just basically rip up the entire tax code and replace it with a flat tax, something simpler, simple enough to, as the old saying goes, to file your taxes on a postcard, right? Um, right. And, you know, I, I can totally see that. And there, this is a, there's a huge, a huge amount of money that's being paid to these third parties. Uh, uh, Intuit, the, 
the uh, parent company of TurboTax, their consumer tax business generated $1.8 billion in 2015. I mean, that that's a right. lot of money that people are giving, you know, TurboTax. I gave them money. I give them money every year. So, I mean- really? Absolutely. Sucker? Uh, no, well, I think it actually saves me more money than, you know, going to an accountant. But the point being, right, that, you know, this could be a lot, a lot simpler. And, and I don't think this is going to go anywhere, but it's really too bad that it's too bad that it's not. Now, you know, not only that brings brings me to a related issue, and that's the IRS. IRS funding has been cut a ton, mostly by your people. Over the right, years. and rightly so. Well, and not rightly so, actually, because <laughs> that's like saying that's like saying. Well, the problem is, is where where the cuts are coming from, and the cuts are coming from, for instance, consumer service to the IRS, and so when people call the IRS, they get much worse service than they used to get. Not only that, but well, they've hey, cut enforcement. Does, well, no, let's put it. That does I would imagine the IRS. Um, uh, higher ups, their management has discretion. Uh, you know, there you get a budget line item for Congress saying this is how much you have, and and you've got discretion as to how you allocate that. Well, sure, within but your agency, your typically. biggest cuts are gonna, yeah, but your your cuts are always gonna come from you know personnel costs are your biggest cuts, and so their their budget has been cut by seventeen percent since two thousand and ten, adjusting for inflation, and. You know, they've had to make big cuts in terms of customer service, and customer service quality has gone way down. They've also had to make big cuts in enforcement and, and auditing and so forth. And there, are, this is this is a way where you know we can get in extra money, and not extra money, but money the government should be getting in by enforcing the tax laws we already have. Some estimates by the Treasury Department, for instance, say that for every additional dollar that we invest in IRS tax enforcement, we can get up to $4 in increased revenue. And that's not actually increasing taxes on people. That's just just the basic baseline fairness of saying, hey, if you cheat on your taxes, we're going to catch you, or at least we'll catch more people who cheat on their taxes. And I don't understand how anyone could be opposed to that. I'm, I'm not. I'm not opposed to that. Good but for you. I, let's let's put it this way. But I've been I've been th- I've been through enough enough of these rodeos, uh, where anytime an agency gets its budget cuts, uh, it 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 cries of, oh my gosh, if we only had this much more, we could do so much better. Uh, and and so forth. So I, I'm always a little bit um, skeptical. Let's put it this but, way. I think if the IRS really wanted to to change how it allocates its resources internally to focus more on collection, it could certainly do that. Um, if it wanted to have better customer service, uh, it could it could uh, train its its uh, people better. It could hire better better people. Um, to say that you just you just Give us more money, and then the customer service will get better. Well, it's not more I, money. I, 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 just, I just don't buy it. I think that's one of these arguments you make every every year at budget time. Now, look, if if there is some um, uh, some concrete evidence that they can do more in terms of uh, uh, you know better collection and stopping tax fraud, great, I'm all for it. Yeah, and that's my um, point. That's my point. How many agencies can go to Congress and say, "Listen, if you give us an extra buck for every extra buck you give us, we're going to give you four dollars back." And Congress says, "Oh no, we're not going to do that. That would just be insane." I mean, this is essentially the point. But cutting the IRS is such a popular sort of move, I guess that that you know congressional Republicans have been willing to do it. And I think it's just you know it's essentially well, and Democrats too. Let's let's and some let's Democrats sure. Democrats, I think are. The IRS is typically a, a, an easy – it's an easy target. It's an easy yeah. bad guy. That's true. That's uh, true. So, yeah. 
So anyway, I, I think definitely the IRS should have a lot more money for enforcement uh, just so that we could make sure that people who are cheating have a better chance of being caught and pay their fair share. That's all I'm saying. All right. No, I'm, I'm against tax cheats. Okay. One, one thing I do want to talk about, if, if we have time, on, on flat tax, and, and I, I want to get your sort of sense on um, – Yeah, Ted Cruz has called for a flat tax. In fact, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, where what what would be the, the Democrat position on a flat tax, for or against – well, it, it really depends on how it's structured. For instance, this Democrat, meaning me, it's flat. you know, I wouldn't necessarily be against it if it were structured in such a way that uh, people below certain household, below certain incomes are exempt or have get tax credits or something like that. And also, I kind of like the idea. I, I never thought I'd say this. I sort of like Cruz's idea. God. It hurts to say that of combining it with uh, uh, essentially a consumption tax. And so basically okay. a national sales tax. I, again, wow, that, it, sound, that sounds horribly regressive. Well, it depends on how it's structured. It very much okay. depends on how it's structured. So I understand the logic of taxing consumption instead of savings, but I also think that absolutely it can be horribly regressive. But I also believe that you can construct it in such a way where it's not horribly regressive. And so the devil's right. in the details on this. So I can I could see myself being for it. Uh, but a lot would depend on how how it was structured, and so there are certainly huge advantages to it. In fact, there are a lot of conservatives who are very much against a national sales tax, or it's called in Europe a, a that value added tax. Value added, basically tax. the same thing, because it's such a almost seamless way to raise tons and tons of money, and that's what a lot of conservatives are concerned about. Saying we're right. going to find it's, it so it's an easy addiction. And exactly. Once you get hooked. Exactly. Uh, it, it would be easy to, to tweak and um, yeah. uh, people wouldn't necessarily yeah. feel it at first. Uh, very much as, as when the income tax, when um, uh, FDR created the uh, um, uh, payroll deductions. Yeah. Uh, that, you it know, it all comes out so you don't yeah. actually have to pay it and you don't notice it. Yeah. Um, but I just want to talk on, on the flat tax, you know, where, where, where I am, to extend anybody cares where I am, but um, – I think the conservative idea, the um, um, uh, the, the uh, Forbes idea, you know, from years ago of just you know what's your income, here's X percent, send it in. Uh, I think that that makes for for good headlines, but I I think it takes away an important tool of governing, and that yeah. is to you know we can either any government can either government govern by carrots or sticks. Um, this sort of takes away the carrots and, and just you know leaves the government with sticks. So I, that that troubles me a little bit. And I, there are a lot of things where um, the government creates incentives for for policies that it it uh, it likes. Sure. Uh, you know things like uh, you know it, it rewards marriage, it rewards home ownership. Uh, now, coincidentally, the uh, uh, you know the I'm sure the national uh, realtors lobby and home builders lobby uh, is also for that sort of thing. Um, but well, uh, but I think there there's an important policy place in in uh, in the tax uh, tax code where you can you can do things and you can uh, uh, create incentives for for things you you would well, like yeah. to see in, in your country. And a lot of conservatives would say that's exactly the problem. 
because it creates these incentives and it distorts markets. And so they would point to, for instance, the housing market where where the homeowner tax credit has had a huge distortion on the housing market and it's made more people buy instead of rent. And there were certain advantages in terms of mobility to renting or it has, for instance, the employer the tax credit for health insurance has horribly distorted uh, the health care market and so forth. Right. And so, well, yeah. well let's, I'm talking about personal income tax right now. Okay. Yeah, but I think the, I think but that's a, that's a good point because because these incentives are even they're more effective. Oh, yeah. uh, in, in the corporate sense because they have people who actually sit down and figure out how much are we paying in taxes. Yeah. Uh, and, and there are a lot more of these these different kind of uh, rewards or or punishments occasionally. Uh, that you find in the tax code, and you know businesses are more sensitive to them. Yeah. Um, but but that's I mean that I, I think we need to look at one of the chief ways that our government, our federal government, um, incentivizes or disincentivizes conduct is through the tax code. Absolutely. Uh, so so to just say um, we're going to go to a completely flat tax, uh, I, I think that's that's problematic because you lose out on, on some good things. And I, I understand the argument that maybe the government not ought not to be involved in that in the first place. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I certainly know. that's I, I a mean, conservative just, argument. Look, yeah. An interesting, uh, discussion. And I, I, I don't know that people always think that so much of government happens through the tax code. Oh yeah, definitely. Just, definitely. just by, and again, it's just by the, the nudges essentially, as opposed to, um, well, sometimes uh, they're more like shoves, but yeah, good point. Good yeah. point. So, all right. Um, uh, you know, before we move on and talk about the presidential races, there actually are some presidential races going on. We haven't forgotten. Uh, we would like to recognize one of our new podcast supporters, uh, and that is Joan from Danville, Pennsylvania. Joan was one of the show's earliest and biggest fans, and she is our newest platinum level sponsor. So uh, awesome! Thank yeah, you, Joan. Yes, absolutely, no, no, Joan, and thank you so much for all of your support. Now, if you're interested in supporting what we do with a few dollars, or you know more, if you'd like to be a platinum level sponsor and earn our undying gratitude, you can go to politicsguys.com and click on either our PayPal or Patreon donation links that we've got up there. So anyway, um, let's move on to the Republican presidential race. And let me let me start by asking you a question, Jay. All right. Mm-hmm. What sort of people complain about the rules in the middle of a contest? Well, people who are losing. Yeah, losers. <laughs> exactly. Big losers. That's what sort of people Total do that. Losers. Yeah. And Donald Trump is doing plenty of complaining about state rules for selecting delegates, mainly mainly because Ted Cruz, who has an actual campaign organization, uh, is totally smoking Trump when it comes to nailing down delegates. Now, now that doesn't mean that these delegates can vote for Cruz on the first ballot of the convention in Cleveland, at, at least if they're not formally pledged to Cruz. But what it does mean is that they can and quite possibly will abandon Trump for Ted on uh, subsequent ballots, a scenario that's looking more and more likely. And this is one of these things that gets kind of really into the weeds a little bit, but essentially how it works is that when you win a state's delegates, those delegates, those actual individuals who will be going to Cleveland, haven't in most cases been picked yet. They tend to be chosen at state conventions later on in the process, and that that process of picking delegates, well, to 
get into that process, you generally have to be a party loyalist, have to have put your name in nomination and so forth. And so if you're a presidential candidate and you don't have a good grassroots kind of organization trying to get your people to be delegates, that's a lot tougher. And Donald Trump doesn't have that organization. Ted Cruz does. And so a lot of these people, well, they'll, they'll be forced to vote for Trump on the first ballot. After that, there's a good likelihood they're going to they're gonna go and vote for Cruz. And Donald Trump doesn't like that, understandably so, right? So, so I, I mean, what do you think, Jay? Is Trump, does Trump have a reasonable you know, complaint here or, or what? Um, no. It's, <laughs> they this, this, this is one of these things that there's, there's this huge myth that has been foisted upon the American public uh, that they that the, the people choose uh, primary nominees. Amen. The, the yes. people choose party nominees. Uh, they don't. The parties choose them. Um, and and I don't think there's anything nefarious in that. Uh, I, I think there's a lot of good things in that. Um, you know, it, it's just we haven't in recent in recent memory had this sort of a situation uh, where usually the the presumptive nominee gets so much of the popular support within the the party uh, primaries that it, it doesn't matter it's not a question right uh, uh, but but no look it's 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 their party it's their rules just like it's the Democrats it's their party it's their rules uh, uh, the Constitution doesn't guarantee you any particular um, you know ability to choose a a, a party's internal um, workings uh, or, or pick its nominee Um yeah, and and the sooner we all realize that, the better. Absolutely, <laughs> it's, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's just sort of it's sort of like you know it's like a club rules, and, yeah. and you know when you go in and say I'd like a Republican ballot, uh, you're essentially uh, agreeing to the the rules of the club. Yeah, um, and and the the people who run the club can kind of change them as as they as they feel as it should be. Yeah, I agree with you entirely uh, on that. So you know, also I wanted to mention. It, oh, go ahead, Jay. Oh no, I was just going to say, and the other thing, this is where outsiders have a, a disadvantage uh, when you're talking yeah. about delegates. You're exactly right. It's these people who have been working in the party for years. They've been, you know, on, on various central committees, state central committees. They've been township trustees and county commissioners and people who have run, uh, you know, have gotten to know these people and you, you make the rounds and, and you, you know who to talk to in whatever county uh, of, of, of whatever. And, and that uh, seems Trump only is, is, uh, Trump just doesn't have those connections. And, and that seems uh, only right to me is that these are the people who've paid their dues. They've shown their loyal party people. They care about the organization. And so I know if I were part of an organization for, me, for years and really put in the time and effort and someone just came in and just tried to take over my organization, I would be resentful and rightly so. And so, I yeah, I think, you know. Donald Trump is upset because he can't come in and upend the Republican Party when he's not even really a Republican. And oh, boo-hoo. Yeah, I, so I don't yeah. have a whole lot of sympathy. You know, one person who is a Republican is Paul Ryan. And Paul Ryan was in the news, obviously, this week uh, when he said in a very Sherman-esque kind of way that he would, you know, not accept the Republican nomination if it were given to him. And, you know, don't bo- do not do that. And I, I'm not going to run. Right. I won't be your nominee. Please don't throw me in that briar patch. You know, so, yeah, let me ask you about that. Why do you think Paul Ryan, who a lot of establishment Republicans think would be their best hope, this year, why do you think Paul Ryan decided to step away and just not be part of it at all? Well, because you can always because you, you can always change your mind. Um, It'd be tough for him to know, come I, back I from that, but yeah, yeah, sure he could. 
you know, I, I think that's the, that's the thing. And this is part of our, our culture is, and it's probably a good thing. It's not just part of our, our culture, but we, we come from a, uh, a, a place where to be seen as, as wanting power uh, is, is not necessarily a good thing. Uh, we, we prefer the, you know, person that the George Washington, the, the Cincinnatus, so to speak, who's sort of, you know, reluctantly drafted into service and then, then we'll do his part and then step aside. Uh, and I think that's, that's a good thing. That's a very, uh, small R Republican, uh, principle. So, so Paul Ryan's playing that part, uh, correctly. And he's saying, uh, look, no, I'm, I'm, I'm not, uh, interested at this point but you know let, let's put it this way if, if something happens at the convention and who knows where things turn out um you know he may be prevailed upon uh to come in you know, I, you know I, 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 don't I don't think so i sort of doubt that he will but that's that's the right move for him regardless i see i don't think so i don't think no matter what happens that he would be prevailed upon to come in and here here's why because if he does by some stretch of the imagination end up becoming the nominee right there he totally alienates the trump people and i think i think at that point his his chances i don't think his chances of winning in the general election are very good but if he just kind of stays out of things and waits until you know uh hillary clinton is running for her second term I think he stands to be the, the the main candidate, the big guy who doesn't alienate those people. So I think he has a lot better chance if he waits till twenty twenty. He's still really young, so he's a I very think, young man. Yeah, this makes a lot of sense age. for him. You know, he's, he's he's practically a child, right? So I think this totally makes sense for Paul Ryan politically because right now, if you had a bet, you'd have to say, for better or worse, Hillary Clinton's probably going to be the next president. Do you really want to throw yourself into this big mess on the Republican side? Not if you're smart. And Paul Ryan is a very smart guy. Right. Well, that I mean, I think that gets back, though. That's that's the best move he, yeah, he's got. Absolutely. Regardless of, of what he wants to do or doesn't want to do down the road, um, you still position yourself as, as not the guy who's rushing in to try to uh, exploit a bad situation. Um, yeah, definitely. Uh, but you're also sort of elevating your, your, uh, uh, your profile. Um, and, and plenty of people have done this. If you remember, you know, Mario Cuomo uh, back in the, the, the uh, early nineties, late eighties um, sort of went out, went around uh, very conspicuously, not running for president. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, sure. was sort of, as such, became one of the the most you know sought after people. It, it's playing hard to get, yeah. Uh, and I think it works for him either way. Absolutely, yeah. I think you're right. So I shall, but before we move on to the Democrats, I just wanted to mention, of course, uh, the next big contest is actually New York on Tuesday, the 19th, and uh, 95 Republican delegates are up for grabs there, though it's not really much of a contest at this point because Trump has a huge lead. Uh, New York isn't a winner-take-all state, but it's what's called a winner-take-most state. Sort of a winner-take-all. Yeah, but you know, even if Trump gets all 95 delegates, it still looks like it's pretty much an uphill battle for him to get to the 12, 30, 70 needs to get, go into the convention and get, and, and get the nomination on the first ballot, which is why he's so upset about these, you know, these uh, delegate rules, because it's looking more and more, if I were a betting person, and sometimes I am, I, it seems like it's not going to be a first ballot thing. And right now, Ted Cruz is looking, you know, is looking uh, pretty good, I would say. Well, would you agree? 
Yeah, I, I think so. All right. So um, so let's move on to the Democrats. Uh, uh, you know, Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders, this last week they met for their fifth one-on-one debate in the hipster capital of the world, Brooklyn, New York. Uh, now, Sanders has won the last seven states, but he's still a long shot to capture the nomination. And he came out pretty aggressively in what I think was the most contentious Democratic debate so far. And, of course, the crowd, there was a big, raucous crowd booing and cheering and applauding, which made it a real spectacle. I hate I hate live audiences for these things. I think it's a stupid, stupid idea. And But anyway... Sanders, once again, hit Clinton for her ties to Wall Street and her poor judgment with uh, especially the war in Iraq and various other things. And Clinton responded by once again questioning Sanders' understanding of policy details. Um, It was kind of unremarkable to debate. I mean, at this point, we kind of know what the candidates are all about. The only thing I think that was at all interesting was when Bernie Sanders said, uh, here's a quote from Sanders, there comes a time when if we pursue justice and peace, we are going to have to say that Netanyahu, and that's uh, uh, Israel's leader, is not right all of the time. And people freaked out about that. Oh, my God, we, we can't, you know, Israel could occasionally be wrong about something, and maybe the Palestinians, the, their side of the story deserves to be heard, and people just freaked out, lost their stuff. And I thought that was just absolutely ridiculous. I totally agree with Bernie on this, but I have a funny feeling that you don't totally agree with me and with Bernie on that. Well, I, let, let's go to not just what he said at the debate, though. There was a, a uh, New York uh, Daily News interview uh, other other statements he's made where he essentially accused uh, Israel of, of war crimes, of, of targeting civilians, of – I'm trying to pull it all up right now – but um, of, of things that, that simply – Overreacting at the very least. He, I mean he, he flat out said that he thought that they overreacted to certain things. That I, I mean I tend to agree. I think, the te- I, I think uh, along with Bernie that our, our policy has been – way too pro-Israel, and it needs to be adjusted a little bit. Well, I, I disagree with you there. I, mean, <laughs> I knew you uh, would. Israel's the only, de- Israel's the only democracy uh, in the region, our only friend in the region, uh, and they are, they are the front lines on the, uh, in, in the war of terror, whatever we want to say about uh, uh, Pakistan or uh, 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 Iraq or, or Syria. Uh, Israel is our, our, our place there. But uh, you know, again, uh, you know, Bernie Sanders said things about the Israelis were uh, killed over 10,000 uh, innocent people in Gaza, bombed hospitals. Um, uh, and I think that's that's really troubling. I think he's he's going off on a, a kind of a fact free uh, rant. Um, uh, he was condemned by the uh, um, uh, ADL. Um, of course, he was. Other folks. Now, now, again, that, that's that's not. And, and that's what what troubles me. And I've never understood exactly why this is a is a sort of a item of faith on the left that they're opposed to Israel. Uh, well, I wouldn't so- say opposed. No, I think that's going a little too far. I just think that they feel that that our policy is too one sided. All right, all right, and that's a, that's a that's a fair number. That's a fair argument. Uh, but it's a different one thing to say. I think our policy is too one. Cited and, and another to say, uh, I think they are committing war crimes and intentionally targeting civilians. Um, I, you know, okay. when, when you're yeah. talking about what is really our, our number one ally in the region, so sure. okay, uh, I think a, a very shocking, well, shocking, but but lapse of judgment 
uh, in saying that. And I, I don't know whether he really meant it. I think it just might have been this this is sort of the campus rant uh, against Israel and, uh, you know, okay. pro-divestment and all that sort of nonsense. Yep. But, <clears throat> there, there, you know, there, there he goes. There's another issue where I think, surprisingly, you and I might actually agree uh, on, uh, and that's the you have you heard of the I'm sure you've heard of the fight for 15, right? The national call for uh, 15 dollar oh, yeah. an hour minimum wage, and and Bernie Sanders, Bernie Sanders has been a proponent of that from the beginning. Hillary Clinton has sort of been lukewarm about it. Now uh, she recently endorsed this sort of kind of. Uh, even though it seems like she understands that it's not such a great idea. And even some liberal, a number of liberal economists say, I don't know, this might be a bit much and this could be going too far because, of course, well, Jay, you're, 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 you're a conservative uh, in the group here of two. Uh, so why don't you, can you explain just kind of briefly to listeners why raising minimum wages that much might be a bad idea? Well, we, we really don't have enough time for all of it. No, certainly um, not. But just the, the, look, the short version. The, sure. the minimum wage was was created to provide a, a floor. It was not created to provide a here is what people ought to be paid uh, so that they can uh, live their entire life and, and raise a family, buy a house, buy a car, do all these things on this minimum wage. Um you know, if it were up to conservatives, uh, a lot of conservatives, I, I would expect that maybe they're, it, it ought just all to be de- determined by the market. But anytime you change things like uh, the market value of, of labor, uh, you're adding costs. And you add costs, uh, those disproportionately affects uh, small businesses and other certain kind of businesses that uh, rely on uh, a lot of um, unskilled labor. So so that's, it, it's bad in that way. It's inflationary and it's it's tough for businesses. Um, the bigger piece of this to me, though, is is um, what it does to our, our culture. I mean, you and I have both worked at minimum wage jobs, I'm sure. Uh, mm-hmm. I remember working at minimum wage jobs when the minimum wage was something like three seventy five an hour. Um, and that was when I was in high school. Sure. And and that was that was actually OK. You know, and, and th- these are taken away jobs from from kids who are just getting into the workforce, who are learning the habits of the workforce, uh, who are building experience, who are building resumes, and, and maybe they're just flipping burgers, whatever. Um, but but they're learning how to participate in the economy, and I think that's a good thing. And when you start raising the minimum wage, uh, you take away those entry level jobs. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and you- and that's that's bad for us in the short term, and it's bad for us in the long term. My, you know, my I guess my where I come down on this is right now there are. Uh, $15 an hour minimum wage laws in a number of cities, but also statewide in California and New York. And my thinking on this is before we go ahead with a national requirement, it makes a lot more sense to me to wait and see what happens in New York and especially a big diverse state like California. And maybe, maybe we find that a statewide $15 an hour minimum wage law actually is a good thing. And, and a lot of economists say it's not like we're against it, just we don't really know what the effects would be. And so this is one of the big advantages of federalism is you can try things out on you know one state or another, and then if they work, you can adopt them in more states nationwide. So I think that's a much better model. It's more cautious, it's slower, and we get a better sense of what's going on before we do something that's pretty radical and we don't know the, you know, we don't know the consequences. Right. No, I, I think that's absolutely right. Uh, the other final point I would would raise is that the fight for 15 now, um, 
if they win that, it'll shortly be the fight for 25. Uh, there's, right. you know, Ohio actually just went through this, I want to say four or five years ago, we had a minimum wage issue uh, that raised the minimum wage. Uh, it passed. Uh, and now it's, it's, we've got a, a fight for 15 group here uh, trying to get a, get it on the ballot. Uh, and, and it's, there's a ratcheting effect and it's, it's, uh, it, it's, it's dreadful. There's sort of the, um, the moral hazard of uh, telling companies, I don't, I don't think uh, you ought to pay your own money to somebody else. Uh, I, it's, yeah, it's, it's bad all around. I mean, don't get me started. This well, is- I think we, we just, dis- we may disagree somewhat on uh, uh, the value of uh, a higher minimum wage, but I think we can both agree on the fact that making big changes nationwide very quickly uh, without really knowing what's going to happen. That's not, such a great idea, certainly. And Hillary Clinton used Amen. to. Yeah, so there we go. But, you know, I know we're running a little long, but before we go, there's there's an issue that's near and dear to my heart that I, I felt compelled to bring up before we go. And that is right, what's that? That is Alexander Hamilton. Alexander oh, Hamilton, yeah. one of my favorite founding fathers. I think one of yours, right? You know, um, and yeah. Yeah, he's he's on money right now. You know that he's on the ten dollar bill. And there, a while ago, there was a, the Treasury Secretary said, uh, we're going to pull him off the $10 bill to put a woman on there. Now, I think it's we should have – it's long past time that we have a woman on money, I'm, on real paper money. I think that's a great idea. But I was – like a lot, like a lot of Americans, I was very much against taking Alexander Hamilton, who probably among all of our non, you know, certainly of our non-presidents, is the person who most deserves to be on money, given that he was the right. first I treasury think we, secretary. I think we had said at one point yeah. on one of our earlier shows. I mean, he more or less invented money. Yeah, I mean, so you know, he's <laughs> the, the guy. American finance goes. Yeah, and a lot of folks basically said, if you're going to take anyone off money, take Andrew Jackson off of money, who was a horrible human being. Uh, and you know, I, I would say, of course, I agree for taking Jefferson off of money, who was a much more horrible human being. Uh, awful, awful guy. But anyway, I, I, the point is, is that it looks like Hamilton's going to be okay. And and why is and, that, and Jay? Thanks, thanks largely to uh, Lin Manuel Miranda. Uh, uh, composer and uh, performer of the uh, the musical Hamilton, um, which which I think is my I have a fourteen year old daughter and it's pretty much uh, on continuous play in our our house. So yeah. <laughs> my understanding is that I, my understanding is that if you actually want to see it, you might have to take out a loan to actually be able yeah. to afford uh, tickets. Essentially, but yeah, I've I, I've been told it's great, uh, and I it. You know, regardless of its merits, if it saved Alexander Hamilton on the $10 bill, I am all for it. So that's some good news, I'd say. Yes. Thank you, Lin-Manuel Miranda. Yes. For, for saving Alexander Hamilton on the $10. And also really for the musical because it is – it's it's smart and it's funny and it's clever. And, and uh, um, you know, if you get over the, the idea of all your founding fathers rapping um, – the substance of what they're rapping about is is really pretty pretty good and, and interesting historical arguments and and pretty accurate to the facts and you know it's I'm it's I think it's great it's it's getting kids uh, exposed to uh, a founding father who as we've we've said doesn't probably get enough attention absolutely 
Absolutely. All right. Well, then that's it for this week's episode. Thanks, everyone, for listening. If you have any thoughts, comments, or criticisms, or any questions for our Ask the Politics Guys show, which comes out every Wednesday, we would love to hear from you. Our email is politicsguys at gmail.com. And our Facebook page, where Jay and I post and comment on news articles throughout the week, and where you can join in, is facebook.com slash politicsguys page. And if you're listening to us on iTunes or Stitcher, we'd really appreciate it if you could take a minute to rate the show and write a quick review. And finally, if you like what we're doing and you want us to be able to keep on doing it, a donation of even a dollar or two, the price of uh, a Torre 6-inch acrylic genuine rubber blade squeegee would really help. You'll find donation links on our site, politicsguys.com. The Politics Guys will be back next Sunday. We hope you'll join us.